and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I am your host, Austin Glidden, and we are brought to you today, of course, by the Filmy app. Go check out thefilmyapp.com for all things film because, you know, they never shut up about movies over there. You can also hang out with us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can go to Instagram, search Medium Cool Pod, and we'll pop up, or at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also email us with feedback at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please come hang out with us on social media. We're going to be doing a lot of really cool stuff that involves each and every one of you. But today, we have Galen Ross. Now, not only is Galen Ross a filmmaker, documentarian, but she also, in a past life, was an actress, and she only appeared in three films, but check out check out these movies. All right. Her first film was George Romero's absolute zombie classic from 1978, Dawn of the Dead. Get out of here. She was the main lead, Francine. And um, and yeah, I mean, what an iconic film. Many would consider it the best zombie film ever made. And hey, our guest today was in that movie. And not only that, she was one of the stars. Uh, she was also in a kind of cult classic uh, slasher movie from 1981 called Madman, and then she uh, had a, uh, admittedly a fairly small role, but a role nonetheless in the uh, one of the segments of George Romero's Creep Show in 1982, another beloved classic. She was uh, the poor, unfortunate young lady uh, that ha- was buried, you know, to her neck and uh, was essentially about to drown, um, and she was in the segment with Ted Danson and uh, Leslie Nielsen, so that's really fun. Galen Ross is an absolute delight, and uh, I hope you guys really enjoy our conversation. Uh, Funny thing, so I did some basic research, very basic. I really, you know, either I know a lot about someone or I don't, and I really like to have organic conversations with people, and it's funny because, um, honestly, I didn't know a lot about Galen Ross prior to this. You know, I, I knew she was a documentarian, and I knew the three movies she was in. And that's about it. So I had to look into her documentaries. And where do you go to learn about movies? IMDb.com, of course. IMDb is the place. It's the Internet Movie Database. It's the database we all go to. I've had film professors go to it. I have friends. I have, I mean, just everyone goes to IMDb. So I go to IMDb and I'm looking up all of her documentaries and I get them all kind of in chronological order and I'm ready to work through them with her. And from the beginning of her documentaries, as soon as I mention them, Wrong. No, I did this one first. Wrong. No, that one was later. I, you know, I felt like a complete dunce. It made me wish that I had done even more work uh, than I did because it seemed like all of my information was wrong. Galen was a complete sweetheart about it, you know, and she didn't make me feel stupid about it. I did that all by myself. Um, but yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna hear some <laughs> um, some moments where Austin gets corrected. Um, but you know, we, we had a great time though. And Joe, uh, my good pal from the film Yap, you know, he, uh, he's been friends, you know, at least on social media and they've hung out a few times and stuff. He's been friends with Galen for, uh, a few years now. And so, uh, you know, big thanks to Joe for getting her on the show. So, uh, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation with Galen Ross. You know, we're going to be, you know, plugging some stuff that she has coming up here, hopefully soon. You know, she's had kind of a rough, um, go around with some of the documentaries she's working on with different rights and different things. And I, I really hope that she gets all that worked out because I am so excited to see her work. She has a couple of things on Amazon. I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about those in a moment. 
but anyways, hey guys, stay tuned. This is an awesome, awesome interview with none other than Galen Ross. Check it out. I'm Galen Ross. I'm um, a film documentary film director and producer. Uh, at one time in my life, uh, quite a few years ago, I was an actress in George Romero's films. I was really interested uh, once we started talking about getting you on here because uh, I noticed that you were not only born, but you grew up in Indianapolis. So we're all just Hoosiers here. Um, we're all just Hoosiers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my, my, I guess my first question, uh, you know, just to kind of get... Why did I leave? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's actually more of like, how did you start here and then end up in LA? Yeah, talk to my parents, um, but... Uh... <laughs> No, I never lived in L.A. No, I lived I lived in Indianapolis until um, mostly through through the beginning of high school. And um, I really found by by the time I hit my sophomore year in high school, I'd had enough. So I moved to Northern California for a while, stayed with relatives there and then moved back here and then moved to New York and then moved back here and graduated here. And then my senior year in high school, um, I told my mother I would finish high school with the rest of the class if I could go to night school because I wanted to work for the presidential campaign with all the cool college kids during the day. And so that was sort of a deal breaker. And, and she agreed and I graduated and I got to work with um, McCarthy campaign then at the time. And then as soon as I could, I applied and went to school in Northern California in Monterey, which was not a bad place to be in the sixties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You, you went to the new school. Yeah. Am I, am I correct in that? That's in New York. Oh, that's the new the... school is in New York. Yeah. That was a few years later, but Monterey was the beginning of my college, my college career. And, um, then I moved uh, through a number of reasons, ended up in New York City. And then I went to the new school and well, finished my PA there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I found it interesting. I think I was either listening or reading a different interview with you. And you talked about, you know, hanging around with, you know, Lewis Black and like th this whole group of... Well, that of, was much later. Much later. When, when was, was that? Later. Yeah. Well, the, when I went to the new school, it was like in the 70s. And I was a, at the time, I was working as a um, literary um, poetry editor and literary uh, editor with a, a magazine called Antaeus. It was a small press magazine. And the press that came out of that was Echo Press. It's still around today. And um, Drew Hines, the Hines ketchup lady, was the publisher of it and Paul um, Bowles was one of the um, co-founders of it and I would go to Tangier to meet Paul when we were working on this. So there was one of the best literary magazines at the time, uh, Paris Review, Partisan Review, um, you know, all the young poets then are all the great poets now. Um, yeah. I think Louise Gluck, we published her when she was the first book and she just got the Nobel Prize for Literature. So that that was an interesting time. And then I decided that I wanted to explore acting. And so that's how I started taking acting classes. And that was the period in the late 70s when I 
uh, met George and, and auditioned for him. Yeah, well, well, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about that, because you're really going in the direction that, that I'm kind of <laughs> wanting to get to, basically, because I was really surprised how you went from Indianapolis to being in Dawn of the Dead, essentially. And yeah, so, I was like... pretty surprised. My mother was surprised. <laughs> My sister was surprised. Everybody was surprised. It's like, how did this happen? First, I had to get out of Indianapolis. I'm sorry, guys. You stayed, and Indianapolis is a lovely city now, but it's a little landlocked. But when I was... When I was growing up in Indiana, it wasn't such, um, it was a pretty conservative, repressive um, environment, I found. And um, I think my only boyfriend at the time in high school was, was the beginning of trying to be a hippie, or he was an artist, at least he was an artist. But <laughs> I, I knew I had to get out. And most of my friends got out. <laughs> most of my high school reunion is outside of uh, in, they come from outside of India I know you know I don't want to be snobby or anything about Indiana it just wasn't the kind of place for me during that time I mean um, I totally get it by the way yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get yeah. what you're saying yeah I mean it was it's a difficult it was a difficult place you know also my family was Jewish I had part of my family were Holocaust survivors we were Democrats that was a big thing at the time. Um, so in a very traditional um, Republican um, Christian environment, it was um, not, not always easy. But, you know, many, many people live here and are happy and many, many people stay. So, you know, yeah. it's, it was just a personal choice. Oh, no, <laughs> and I totally get it. You know, my wife and I have found those pockets of, you know, progressives and people that are like-minded with us. And we find that everywhere all over Indiana, we find these people yeah. that kind of share our views. But you're right. On on the surface, I mean, what are we? We have the Colts, the Pacers, the Indy 500, and we're a red state. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know yeah, I mean? <laughs> but it's much different now. I mean, come on. You know, in the 50s and yeah. the early 60s when I grew up yeah. here, um, don't forget Indiana was the home of the John Birch Society. Ku Klux Klan was very popular oh, yeah. here. Um, it was not, you know, it was pretty close to being a southern state. It's a much, much different state now. And I I would say, um, it, you know, it, there's no comparison. Sure. Even yeah. though, even though it created Dan Quayle and Mike Pence and... Yeah. Well, we, yeah. don't, we, we don't talk Bill about that. Spurned, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's you also, so that kind of evens out. Oh. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the fans of, you know, of, of the films are, are, you know, fairly conservative people. And that's their prerogative. You know, I know George was not. George, at the end of his life, was appalled by, by Trump and what was happening mm -hmm. in the country. And even if his fans were conservative, they have to accept that about George. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and from what I hear, you guys got along so well. Uh, back then and all the way through his life, my understanding, you know, how, how did you come to meet George and how did you end up, you know, being a part of Dawn of the Dead? Well, I would think I was auditioning in an acting, I was in an acting class and a friend of mine at the time, Sarah Venable, who was in a couple of George's films, she was in Martin, she was a suburban housewife, but, um, she knew that they were auditioning for Dawn of the Dead. And I remember I was very blonde at the time, really blonde. And she, <laughs> she turned around to me and as Sarah's want to do, she just screamed because she just screamed and said, you're blonde. And I said, yeah. And she goes, they're looking for blondes. They're blonde. Go, go, go. So I had no idea who George was and I had no idea what the film was. I mean, I never even 
heard of Night of the Living Dead. And so I went to audition. And I auditioned with a monologue who was a great playwright, um, Jean-Claude Van Italy. And I've since told him the, the story because it's very funny. And he has this great monologue about, um, are you safe? Uh, it's a monologue. So somebody walks down the street and they turn around they, to their friend. And the friend asks, are you safe? And she keep asking, are you safe? And then, what do you mean? And then it, they tell the story about how their friend had crossed the street and was killed instantly. So what does safe mean? So I changed the monologue to, to as if it had just happened to me before. Before, before the audition, and I finished the monologue, and George just stared at me and said, "I'm so sorry." And I said, "Well, for what?" He was totally appalled. He was so upset. And I go, "He said, oh, your friend died. Your friend died." I said, "No, no, 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 no. It was a monologue. I was acting. It was just a monologue." So that, that got that scared George, and it got his attention. And I told the playwright since he's, he's in his eighties now, he was very amused that that got me the Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> That's so um, awesome. And then, and then I had we had the callbacks, and then I found out what Night of the Living Dead was. I think when they finally cast us, they we had a screening with George in the office in the screening room, and we we all watched with popcorn. Night of the Living Dead, and I was like, uh, my God. <laughs> and, and I had never really acted professionally before. My resume was pretty fake. That's you know, what young actors do. Yeah. They put a bunch of things in. And, you, know, th- you know, dinner regional theaters that never existed, and, you know, try to track them down, and all sorts of professional skills they had, which came back to haunt me literally later. But um, <laughs> We'll get to George, the ice skating shortly, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, ice skating, yeah, professional ice skating. And um, so anyway, um, yeah, so then I went, okay, and then this was really my first job that George didn't know this was my first job. And he found out later. I think he found out when we did some panel together and he turned around to me and he went, oh, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> So I was pretty nervous. But anyway, so that's how I got cast. And, and um, yeah, we, we stayed friends um, for, for years after. Well, what, what, was, what was your relationship like with George on the set? I mean, how, what was it like working uh, with him and, and Ken and, and the other performers that were with you? I mean, what was that set like? Well, it was crazy. I mean, we, we had... You know, the very beginning, I mean, I was so nervous. I couldn't stand looking at the dailies and myself, and I had no idea what I was doing. I think the first day on the set, I shot the cameraman, Mike Gornick, in the, in the, because I didn't know that blanks could hurt. I remember the first, the first, the first was, you know, nobody was teaching me. So the first time I heard cut, I remember Mike screaming and said, somebody teach her how to use the gun. <laughs> that was the thing on the roof. I think that was our first day shooting. But George was very, very kind and very open and relaxed and allowed actors to, you know, improvise and to, um, you know, it was a very, it was a very generous set. And, and, um, you know, the thing about George, which I learned and I thought was remarkable always, was his, um, you know, the way he would work. And it was uh, always a respect for, you know, any crew member, any zombie, any extra 
that everybody was treated well and it made the difference because in many circumstances where the weather was really inclement or the long, long hours, it wasn't a union shoot, you know, these crew people would do anything for George. You know, they would just work as much as, not because George asked them to, but they volunteered to do it because they wanted to. It was a, it, there was a feeling that, you know, there was no dictator uh, on on the set. It was, George was um, uh, somebody you wanted to do better for. Yeah, well, he he seems like through interviews and things that I've I've either listened to or read, he seemed like the type of person that was almost a part of the group. Less, I mean, of course he's leading it, but um, like it was almost like all of your gears working together for this to work, and he would listen to see how things could function better. I remember hearing something about you, Galen, where um, you know he wanted you to scream. You know, in, uh, in, in one scene and, and, you know, you were like, ah, well, he dubbed it in later. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but, but at, at the very least at the time, he seemed receptive. Am I wrong? <laughs> Before yeah, he dubbed no, it. I mean, it, it, you know, no, I mean, he, he was, uh, he was a very gentle person. He, he was definitely the director. He wasn't part of the group group, but you know, he had a feeling. I mean, I think that was, um, expressed in his later film um what, what's it called night riders yeah you know the feeling of loyalty the feeling of um being together in 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 a in a in a group in in the sense of um you know the loyalty that there was and i yeah. think that expressed um George's feelings, you know, toward crew and toward his film but i mean the 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 way yeah i mean I talked to George early on about, you know, Night of the Living Dead, you know, was was um, a signature film and, and, and certainly changed filmmaking for a lot of people and certainly added the word zombie to the canon of sure. the language and film. But the women, as much as I, <clears throat> uh, I like them and respect them, as actors and people were not characters that were not particularly um, bold or, or aggressive or, um, and that, that concerned me when I first saw it, you know, that they were withering more mm -hmm. than fighting back. So I said to George, I said, you know, if we're doing this character, I mean, I did not want to end up as the withering, crying, screaming character of, of horror films. And I think this was the time to, when women were starting to, I think Sigourney Weaver had really opened up that door with Alien mm. in a big way, and then Linda in, in Terminator. But um, women were starting to find very, very, and those were the only two films that, you know, really you saw women not, you know, hiding and being protected and um, crying and, um, you know, essentially being ineffective. So that was the concern. And I remember, you know, George wanted me to scream in the airport hangar scene. And I said, I didn't want to scream in the air. I didn't want to cry. You know, I want to punch somebody. <laughs> didn't quite work out. And so George did end up putting a couple of yells in the audio mix, but that's okay. But I think that basically it affected the way, you know, the rest of the shoot went because 
as we were shooting in real life, the guys were sort of hanging out together and they became the guys and I was the drag, you know, I mean, I'm a drag in the film and then I became the drag in real life, you know, it's like, you know, the guys had, you know, bonded. And that's when I approached George about, we needed another scene. And that's when he wrote the breakfast scene. You know, I would have made you breakfast, but I didn't bring my pots and pans. And then the guys all rolled their eyes and I said, I want to, fly the helicopter and George wrote that for me That's because awesome. yeah, yeah. No, he knew he knew that it had to shift and <clears throat> I think it became like one of the best scenes when that turned yeah. um, and then the other scene that I really <laughs> George and I had a big discussion was the makeup scene where she's just sitting there playing with the makeup and with her gun and all by yourself. And George was going to cut it. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, we need that one scene where she's alone and without the guys and her own, her own place. And he left it in. That's, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. I wrote him a letter in the middle of the night. <laughs> this typewriter in his office. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's one thing. Film history was always my my interest, and and one thing I always notice is like when I first heard you, I even text Joe. I think after I first heard it, when you mentioned Sigourney and then Linda, and yeah. I was like, yeah, there Hamilton, were there were Hamilton. yeah yeah Linda Hamilton, right. and and it just seemed like yeah there were no strong. It didn't seem like there were strong female leads in horror. Before that, until no. and then when I heard you though in interviews talking about you trying to do that, I found that very interesting. Yeah. Well, and I think things shifted even further with Day of the Dead and and the woman character yeah. there, you know. So it it was it definitely changed, but I mean I don't compare my role in in that way with with Sigourney, sure. who was unbelievable, but it was a whole different kind of whole yeah. different thing. Yeah. Yeah, a whole different thing, but I think it was the beginning of something. And it certainly was a shift from Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I was I was going to say too, it, it even even for George it seems like a, you know, for George Romero it seems like a a bit of a shift that you you nudged him in that direction. Then his next film, you know, yeah, cuz you you know you're right, I didn't think about that, but but yeah, the the female lead in Day of the Dead is is really Yeah. Uh, like really, she's really yeah. bold, yeah. Yeah. Lori Cardell, I mean she's mm-hmm. yeah, the the writing of it was different. You know, yep. and the writing of it was different. Yeah, I think George was, you know, moving in that direction. I mean, George is a feminist. He was, yeah. you know, and it just had to be interpreted in, in the way that he would, um, how the characters would, would play in the in the film. Yeah. And what about the remake? Like, why weren't you in that? I did. I decided not to be in the remake because it wasn't George directing it. Uh-huh. So I declined. And um you know, they did whatever they did, but then they they named this. I mean, I they named the store after me in the shopping mall in the remake, which I yeah, <laughs> I did not know I that. Sue them. I couldn't even sue them because it wasn't like my image. It was just my name. It was just I, your name, yeah. So, so was that something you were like? I can't believe they did that, or it wasn't like you didn't laugh about it and thought it was funny. I did both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> got me. They got my name. You know. What, can, I, can I get a check out of this? Let's see. <laughs> yeah. No. Really. Seriously. Yeah. I I noticed it when I saw first saw that in the theater, and I laughed about it. I was like, "That's so cool!" And like, you know, most of the people that I was around <laughs> me, you know, didn't notice it. And I was like, I was like, "No." In the background, it was Galen Ross. I was like, she wasn't in the movie. But that again, I, I that was 
long before I met you, I think. That's um, pretty funny. Yeah, that yeah. was the remake. I, I, yeah, I don't remember when the yeah, it must have been. I don't remember when the remake came out. Yeah. But I was like, I think. Say, I think, you know, it's, you know, I would only add to that is that, you know, over the years, I mean, there have been lots and lots of zombie films and horror mm -hmm. films that sort of, I mean, Walking Dead and, you know, mm -hmm. which George Lucatero's, you know, was the protege of, of, of <laughs> George's. Um, you know, it's pretty amazing how George's legacy has gone on, you know, but, mm -hmm. but I think what's important is that what, what George had in mind was not just horror. It was um, social commentary. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Humor and social commentary, I think. And I think that that intelligence was, um, you know, you, it's not just a virus or um, a zombie that comes popping out, but it's what you want to say. And then it's always interested me that the film that George didn't get the funding for was the original script for Day of the Dead, mm -hmm. um, which he had to reduce the spending considerably and it became a completely different film. But that script was quite amazing and it really was sort of like George's Blade Runner and it was very, very prophetic because what he had created then was a landscape where zombies, you know, there was the elite who lived in the towers above and then there were the, the, the independent sort of um, uh, the ones who who were the rebels who were living in you know like similar to uh, detention camps who always of course had to fight their way out and, mm -hmm. and get a better life and then, with great characters and then he created what he considered the new workforce which was zombies and they were the labor they were the labor for the factories they were the labor for the mindless you know the mindless work that had to be done um and so zombies were cultivated and fed mm -hmm. and they did our labor which was really an amazing thing if you think about where we are today you know and how we treat labor and factory workers and george had seen that as an equivalent of, of dehumanization Wow. And, and 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 the zombies were representative of that. And of course, he managed somehow to humanize even those zombies and, yes. and feel empathy for them. Mm -hmm. um, but that was prophetic, just like mm -hmm. it was prophetic when he put, you know, the, the idea of the blood on the MasterCard, you know, the shopping mall <clears throat> of the capitalist society when he did Dawn of the Dead. Mm -hmm. um, and it's too bad the Day of the Dead didn't get me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. There's also that scene in Dawn of the Dead where I think it's, I'm pretty sure I remember it being you at least, where uh, there's the zombie that's like right by the gate or something and you don't kill it. Like you free the it. The nun? Yeah, yeah. The nun. Yeah, yeah. well, that yeah. was because George was so religious. Yeah, because the Catholic. <laughs> he, did. he said, You can't kill a nun. And I said, George, she's dead. He goes, I know. He goes, But he said, She's a nun. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. And so, so he made me. Let her go, you know. Yeah. Don't hit shoot her. Did did you when the remake was coming out and you declined, did you talk to George around that time? Do you remember well, if George you ever talked and I to him? always George and I always were in conversation. I mean, you know, I've I i do not think we talked specifically about the remake. But George and I stayed friends always and he was, you know, instrumental in helping me 
um, when when Kastner was getting a, um, the premiere in Toronto, introducing me to, you know, the, the curators of the festival there. Sure. Um, so, no, we stayed in touch. And, you know, he was working on, you know, Day of the Dead and Bruiser and other, you know, films that were coming. And, um, you know, uh, you know, we didn't, I, I don't think George wanted to, like, you know, sit and worry about, you know, remakes of his films or talk about it or watch it. You know, they just, they were out of his control and mm -hmm. that wasn't, yeah. you know, part of it. Sure. Do you, do you keep in contact with any of your co-stars from Dawn of the Dead? Well, yeah, I just was in Japan. Japan had a, a wonderful um, um, horror convention. It was really fun. They do it very differently. <laughs> there they it's sort of like a two-day seminar thing with you know hundreds of fans and uh so ken came and i was there and we it was just the most amazing amazing event um japanese producers and a uh, norman england um created it and we had a blast it was just great the fans were super wonderful and we, we had this wonderful time yeah and so you know, so you, you work with George Romero again uh, shortly after, but before we get there, uh, you're in a film called Madman. Okay. Um, now I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make you talk about this too long, Galen. But um, how did you get there, though? What? How, how, like, how did you get to be in Madman? That seems so random when I think of Creep Show and Dawn of the Dead. Like, how did that come to be? You working in Mad oh, Men? Oh, the producer, and he was casting, and he asked me if I wanted to be in it. And, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, nobody knew whether it was really going to happen or not. And they didn't know whether they were going to get their financing. And in fact, they did get their financing, but it was months after summer. So we were in the woods in a summer camp in like November. <laughs> the leaves were falling down and the set designer had to keep pasting leaves all over the trees oh god and we were in double un long underwear and um i think and and the, the highlight for for everybody was that there was this great chef so we were all eating and then the poor <laughs> designer clothes out so it was it was interesting, <laughs> it was interesting. I, mean I had a in the film, I had a braid, a blonde braid that no matter what happened, I think it could have survived any nuclear holocaust. That braid never. <laughs> so it was amazing at the beginning of the film or the end, that braid was there. That is awesome. You know, I, I saw that movie before I, sorry, I saw that before I met you. And, and I don't remember if this was your character or not. The, the thing that always sticks out to me was that, and I actually went back and read because I wrote about it years ago um, for my <laughs> website. And the, the thing that, that I thought was hilarious that I wrote about was that there's a scene where someone is, is hiding from Madman Mars and, and <laughs> it was a woman. I, tell me if it was you, but she empties out a refrigerator and hides inside the refrigerator. <laughs> I don't remember. I wasn't in the, uh -huh. I don't think I was, or if I did, I repressed that. I don't <laughs> <laughs> but I it, was, it, it was this very like loud, like just like, shoving all the food out of the refrigerator onto the floor and then jumping into the fridge the refrigerator but i don't remember hiding through the refrigerator 
<laughs> That's awesome. So real quick, but before we move on from that, though, um, you know, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but why don't you share with our listeners, you know, you, you, uh, your name was credited as Alexis Dubin or Dubin yeah. or however you want to say. Um, French. Yeah. What was the, what was the uh, reason for having fake names at the time? Well, it wasn't a union film. So we all had to change our names if we wanted to be in it. That was that was the main consideration. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 that was my that's what I thought was the case. But um, so anyways, you know, uh, in 78, you're in Dawn of the Dead. Eventually, some producers get you into Mad Men in 81. And then 82 comes around and you hook up with George Romero again for Creep Show. Um, yeah. I just want to start with a broad question. What are some good stories from Creepshow? I mean, you worked with Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson. I mean, I can't imagine that being a boring time. (laughs) I was in the beach. I was not in every, I mean, Creepshow is divided into different comic sections. So I was only in the beach scene. So I was buried up to my neck in the beach. Uh, Not really buried, but, you know, as if I were buried with this wave machine that they had created and George was uh, sitting cross-legged on the beach um, going action when the wave, and I think George and I had some, you know, safe word if I was really drowning and dying, (laughs) (laughs) he would cut. And I don't remember. I remember it was, I was in a wetsuit in the sand and, and then this wave machine came from the ocean that they created. It was like a real, uh, it was a real contraption. And then, um, you know, so that that was like several hours as I was drowning. And um, then I turned to George. I remember turning to George and, and looking at him cross-legged with his parka on and very dry. And I said, you know, I think it's all better on the other side of the camera. I think that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> so I credit George for moving me away from acting. <laughs> oh no, but but it looked it looked I mean you were in under in whatever the contraption is or underground or whatever for hours doing that? No, it was like it, it was just a a hole that was dug and fortified and I'm sitting there inside the you know, on a bench with a stool with a wetsuit on. But the water coming at me was real ocean mm-hmm. water. <laughs> yeah. And then then there was Leslie. You know, mm-hmm. Ted and I, I I don't even remember some of the stories. Some people remember that, you know, Ted and I were fooling around a lot doing the, the, when once we were dead, oh, well, we had to be in makeup with Tom Savini for quite a while after we were dead. And then he pasted seaweed all over us and we had this makeup, this fake face and, you know, all of the, the ghoul aspects of it. And, and then, you know, we would go to haunt Leslie. So I think Ted and I would do our dead, <laughs> dead lines with Southern Hill, but I don't remember what we did. And then, but Leslie never played it straight, so we would go do the the scene where we, you know, here we are, here we come, and then Leslie would greet us with something ridiculous every every single time that would break. Up the scene. <laughs> so I make more money off of a show called Bloopers. Because they used probably about 20 of these clips for bloopers. And um, there were outtakes of Leslie, you know. It was impossible to be serious around Leslie. And he had this little hand fart machine. 
<laughs> this is so notorious. I know about this. Yeah, so he would take it on every talk show. He took it on, you know, every time we went out to dinner, he had it, you know, and he had it all the time on the set. So even though we would be trying to do a scene, you know, he would do this and then Ted and I would, you know, crack up. It was, I mean, Leslie was just amazing. Um, he, he was, you know, it's just a very special guy. And then I remember we would sit in the dressing room and we put, um, on, we had, we had Forbidden Planet on the, on the television monitor. Yeah. Planet. That was fun. That is awesome. The creep show. I would only say about creep show was that you know it was it was pretty amazing because it for creep show George had pretty A list actors you know Hal Holbrook and um, Adrian Barbeau and um, you know Vivica Linfers my God you know E.G. Marshall I mean these were no slouches I mean Mm -hmm. they were. Serious people. It's a great cast. And a lot of them came to an Ed Harris. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George sort of discovered Ed. And yeah. he has a great dance yeah. in that movie, by the way. Um. <laughs> yes. His dance is spectacular in that movie, yeah. <laughs> Ed. But but the the fact that it was it was so interesting was that, you know, they came with some of them came, especially the older actors, Fix Weaver came with some trepidation about who they were working with and, you know, this horror director. And what was really to George's credit is that they were all just overwhelmed by, by George's professionalism and how he worked with them and to, to each person. It was, it was really, you know, George, and, and after Creepshow, you know, George started to work with, you know, people like Tim Hutton and other people in, in bigger films, too, that weren't directly involved with zombies. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, he's he did seem so great. And, um, you know, you, you brought up Tom Savini. Uh, do you have any stories about him or did you know him well? He's I mean, he's a legend when it comes to makeup and all that. Yeah. He's a legend. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Tom, I think the the great story was that, you know, when I first met Tom, I flew out to Pittsburgh because he had to um, mold my head because the original ending of Dawn of the Dead, I was supposed to put my head through the helicopter and die. You know, yeah. we were all going to die at the yeah. end. So Joy, uh, Tom puts the plaster mold on and he can't get it off. So it was like <laughs> one of the- where, you know, Tom is going, this never happened before. This never happened before. You know, meanwhile, I'm sitting there and I can't get out of this this plaster. So that sort of began the relationship I have with Tom. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We enjoy each other a lot, but it's, it was a very funny. Yeah. He seems very interesting. <laughs> Go ahead, Galen. No, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. It was, it's just fun. We have a good time. We taunt each other still after all these years. Yeah, you, you know, you, you brought up uh, uh, the in, the alternate ending. Just real quick, I want to ask, do you have a preference between the the alternate ending and the theatrical? Is there? Did you guys end up filming that? Your, yeah, the... we filmed it. Yeah. yeah, we filmed it on a snowy night. And then they used the, I think he used the head, Tom used the head in another scene with another zombie blowing up or something, you know? So, um, yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I, no, I think it was good that we lived, you know? Good. Well then (laughs) all is happy. Yeah. All is well. So, you know, you, you do, uh, as I said, you do Dawn of the dead in 78, you do Madman in 81, you do creep show in 82, excuse me. And then, uh, you know, it's seven years before your first, 
TV documentary uh, from what I've seen. Well, on- I was directing. What I was doing was I was directing theater. I was that was when I was directing theater in New York and in some small theaters and with other playwrights. And uh, that's when I started working directing down at the West Bank Cafe. And that's where. Uh, the guys, uh, Lewis Black and Rand Forrester and Rusty McGee had started the downstairs theater bar. And that became like the place to go in New York in, in the uh, early 80s. Yeah, this all um, makes more sense to me now. I, I'm kind yeah. of putting this together now. Go ahead. No, so I directed a lot of plays down there. And then I got involved with an organization that was filming. Oh, they were doing something with some Polish refugees. And I thought, oh, that could be an interesting idea for a documentary because documentaries at the time were people, very few people were doing them. And as opposed to now. And, um, you know, so that's how I started with that. I did the first documentary in like 84. Um, and then, you know, funnily enough, um, the Booba Boys, uh, who I met in Pittsburgh during um, Dawn of the Dead, who were doing sound at the time for, for George and, and Pat Booba was an editor. Uh, Tony Booba was and became, you know, one of the premier, not just documentary filmmakers of Pittsburgh, but documentary filmmakers of our time. I mean, his, his um, canon of films is really extraordinary as he documented, you know, the last days of um, the Steel Cities and uh, I think it's Brad, Bradford, um, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, the places that just totally declined and his, his films are wonderful. And then Pat, besides editing for um, George moved out to L.A. and he became an editor for Al Pacino, for Richard III, and um, looking for Richard, and, you know, with Martin Scorsese and doing a lot of that. So we ended up in a, in, together in a different way in the, in the film business. Yeah, you know, and I found it, I actually wasn't aware until I looked at your IMDb how many documentaries, both for TV and just film documentaries, you had you had. Uh, actually directed, um, you know, and you have Out of Solidarity, Time for Art. Uh, you did an uh, episode of the Investigation Report. I mean, you have like these series of things, but you're, if I'm not mistaken, your first film documentary was Listen to Her Heart, The Life and Music of Lori Beach. No, that was, no, the Polish documentary, the Polish refugee documentary was the first one. And then the Lori Beachman came in around 2000, I think, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, and uh, IMDb is clearly wrong here, but... Uh-oh, I got to go But uh, so it it says in 2003, but either way, right around the turn of the millennium, you do uh, listen to her heart. What got you interested in doing a documentary about Lori Beachman? Oh, you knew about Lori? Did you know her music? I, I know of her music. I wouldn't say that yeah. I'm one who's listened to her a lot, or but I I know I do know of Lori Beachman. Yes. Yeah, she's a great singer. Um, uh, because you know that was connected also to the West Bank because Lori would sing down at the West Bank. Besides, you know Broadway shows and um, her husband at the time, Neil Mazzella, um, had who had who has the greatest theater design studio. Um, around um, Hudson Scenic um, was had also done a lot of was good friends with Lewis and everybody and did a lot of work for helping out the West Bank theater design down there. So Lori, you know, was a regular and um, when she 
died, um, you know, Neil wanted to do something to, um, you know, honor her legacy. And so we did it. Unfortunately, the only, unfortunately, the problem with that film is that all the music rights were extraordinarily expensive. So oh. it never could get released, um, uh, you know, in the public, you know, maybe someday, but at the time it was like huge. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I have friends who uh, make movies, nothing major, just, you know, I, I did film school stuff and a lot of the production people uh, go on to make, you know, small shorts or the hit festival circuits. And honestly, well, getting music rights, if they have. But you can if, get them, you just have to pay. For that's what I mean. Well, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it gets, it get racks them, up. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the music films now, like this, you know, that are Netflix, is not her and Laurel Canyon. Nothing. I mean, these are extraordinarily expensive. I mean, oh my God, we're talking a million dollars in music rights. I mean, nobody's giving away music rights these days. You sure, know, there's no, you know. So, um, yeah, and of course, Laurie sang. Anyway, she was an extraordinary singer, and um, you know, Rosie O'Donnell did the narration and everybody would, you know, wanted to be in it. And they came and, uh, and we filmed them, Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, uh, you know, the other Cameron McIntosh. I mean, the British producers who did anyway, it was, it was really exceptional and her voice was exceptional. Yeah. So. Well, that, yeah, that's awesome. You, you know, you, you do this documentary on Lori Beachman and a few years later, you put out what I've very quickly come <laughs> to know as kind of what seems like the documentary that kind of put you on the map as a documentarian. Uh, and I apologize if I pronounce this incorrectly. You can correct me. Uh, Killing Katzner. Yeah, that was later. I, I think the film that was the first big big film was the one that was um, about the diamond dealers on 47th Street and, and, and Dealers Among Dealers, which you can get on Amazon as well as Killing Kastner now. Um, it's streaming and Vimeo, it's streaming. But that, the Diamond Dealer film was the one that was on PBS and then it, it opened in the Berlin Film Festival and, you know, was all over the world. So that Very was cool. big, yeah. It was, and it's still to this day, apparently, the only inside look at the diamond world nobody else has gotten really inside because it was it's still such a guarded community um and uh, for for a lot of good reasons <laughs> the diamonds are yeah. worth a lot of money but um yeah that was a fun film to make i love the guys and i love filming it and it was it was great and we filmed it on film and i filmed it with my friend bob richmond who's since gone on and done a lot of great films like the metallica film and you know, brothers keep a lot of different films. Yeah, like it, Paradise Lost is—is is that the yeah. same? That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But Bob and I started together. Bob, uh, Bob was coming out of an assistant DP and and out of Maisel's, and he and I did the um, Polish the refugee film together. That was his first film, really, and mine. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I want to clarify something real quick. I'm going to tell you the order that is on IMDb. So you know I'll where go I'm look going. At the order. I mean, it may be wrong. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. It's, it's just but, I'll look at. It. So no, please bear with me. They don't always do it. They don't do it necessarily to you. Sometimes I don't know what. Yeah, they do. it's 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 very strange. Um, but anyways, uh, the Killing Katzner uh, documentary seemed to be a pretty big deal. Um, yeah. You know, and and I kind of want to instead of just asking about what you know what was it like making that documentary. Um, you know, I mean, that one seemed really personal to you as well. You know, how did you learn about this? Um, 
you know, the subject and then, you know, what kind of then pushed you to dive into it? Because like I said, it seemed very personal. Well, you know, I think for documentary filmmakers, every film becomes personal, you know, but I think in this case, it was, um, it fascinated me because I never realized that there was this kind of negotiation that was going on with, um, during the, the height, the end of the war, but at the height of the, the killings in, in Auschwitz for this negotiation of the last Jews of Hungary, which I, nobody, it's not in any history book that I knew of and I wasn't, um, I didn't know about it, certainly. And so when I started to broach the subject with different people, they said, oh, no, no, it's much too controversial, you know, go away, walk away, which, of course, made me much more interested in it, <laughs> of course. And it was, it was very controversial, and especially in Israel. But the idea at the bottom of it is, do you, do you negotiate with your enemy? Do you talk to your enemy? And that, that's really at the crux of it, and even if it's to save lives. And that's the moral ethical dilemma of Kastner. And there was a man named Rudolf Kastner who negotiated with Eichmann, who was the, at the head of mass murder of, of the Nazi regime, for a number of Jews to be rescued on a train. And then tens of thousands of other Jews that were put into a labor camp instead of moved to Auschwitz, which was at the height of its killing at the time. So instead of being honored as a, um, a rescuer, he was condemned later in Israel as a collaborator. And so what made it very personal for me was to be able to find where the truth of the story was. And then as well for, to see um, many, many of the survivors who were still living when I was making the film find some redemption in, in their own rescue when the film came out in Israel. And then it came out excuse me, you know, it opened in Toronto Film Festival and it was shown all over the world and in theaters in France and theaters in America. It was really very exciting. I mean, I remember when it opened in New York and the lines were around the block to see it. It was really, it was really quite exciting and controversial. (laughs) Yeah, you know, what was, did you ever, I'm assuming you did, but did you find out what the response or the acceptance was in Israel? Like, did it end up being something that was... Yeah, no, I was there when I when it opened in Israel. I was there. We had our premiere. You know, that was a very special premiere. And yeah, it was, I mean, again, you know, you couldn't get tickets. People were, you know, screaming for tickets. And it opened in the theater and opened in film festival there. And then they did something very, very special. They put it on primetime broadcast, which was unheard of for three years in a wow. row for Holocaust Memorial Day. So it was a big deal. And yeah, a lot especially there. But it was a lot of press all over America, too, for the film, because it was a story many people didn't know, you know. Um, and so it was a new story that came out of the Holocaust. Yeah, I certainly hadn't heard of it until I had found out about your documentary either. So, yeah, I mean, that's uh, really important, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you know, Killing Katzner, uh, just for listeners, is on Amazon. I checked that today, actually, so you can check that out, as well as the... Yeah, um, um, dealers among dealers, right? Yep, that's what I was about to say. Yep, and and dealers among dealers is there. Um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm trying not to rush because I really want to talk to you about a specific one, but I have to ask you about this documentary, um, Carrie's Peace. How did you get involved in that? Uh, well, Karis was a Karis, friend. Sorry, 
Paris was a friend. She graduated from Yale um, Drama School with Kate Burton and Tony Shalhoub and um, Louis Black, I think, was a couple of years ahead of her. But uh, Karis was like this amazing, amazing actress. I think she came out of Yale Drama School and went straight into Amadeus on Broadway. She was wow. really exceptional. And then in her 30s, um, she ended up with a benign brain tumor that had to be removed. But in the removal of it, it left her without short-term memory. And so that was, you know, it, the impact that, that it had on her life was, well, it was life-changing, of course, because she couldn't remember lines. She couldn't, you know, she, she, she couldn't remember what, you know, was said, you know, the day before. It, 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 she slowly was starting to get some of her, um, some of her thinking back in that way, her memory, but she would always um, be challenged and um, would never be able to be on the stage. And so we thought, anyway, she so wanted to be back on the stage that she quietly wrote <laughs> and worked on a play about her life and, you know, sort of lassoed her good friend who was the theater director down in, near D.C. where she was living then. And they put it on and they put it and then they brought it to a theater in New York called the Flea Theater. Um, and it was a stunning, stunning performance. Anyway, we ended up, I ended up just sort of filming it, uh, her process. And why we go down to Washington and just hang out with Karis. And, you know, nobody thought that she would really get this production up, but she did. And that was the center of the, the film. And then, you know, the New York Times, David Carr, who's an amazing journalist, came to review it, or did a feature story about it. It was a full-page story in the New York Times in the Arts and Leisure section. Um, so, yeah, that one I hope to get on Amazon soon. Again, that's some music rights issues there, too. Look, Kara's had a lot of music in her play that she didn't bother to clear. <laughs> <laughs> So that was like, whoops. Uh, but anyway, I hope that that will get on Amazon soon. I yeah, see that. I was yeah. about I was about to ask because I'd read about it and I, I was looking for it so I could see it before this. And I was like, I can't find this anywhere. But that makes a lot of sense. And I, I hope you do because I'm... Yeah, I, it was at a lot of film festivals. I think it premiered at the Hamptons Film Festival. And it was at Cleveland. And it was at Heartland here. And mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. really well received yep. here. And so it, it really did very, very well. And, and especially among, um, we had special screenings with people who were, um, you know, in residence who were dealing with brain injury. And they loved it. And they loved watching Karis and sort of, and the big, the big takeaway was that, you know, Karis demanded to be treated um, as an adult and not as a child and not to be patronized. And, and that was a very big message that came through the film, but it was Karis's message. We didn't, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't put it onto the film. It was just part of the film. Sure. That's part so awesome. It was her story. We, mostly it's Karis talking. I mean, Karis is talking about her, her life and we wanted to be her words, her frustration, her, you know, and, and and it spoke very clearly to the people, the audiences watching it. So, um, yeah. So I, I I'm really looking forward to uh, Karis's piece coming out. Hopefully, you yeah, get that worked too. out. And um, I have 
uh, before I get to the documentary, I'm particularly interested in asking you about, um, again, back to IMDb. We'll see if this is accurate. You are going to be the judge. Um, Beijing Spring is a movie yeah. coming out. It says this year. We'll see about that. But can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that was a very interesting project I co-directed with um, another documentary filmmaker, Andy Cohen. Um, and it, well, we did two together. One was Beijing Spring. It's about artists who um, ended up coming out uh, with with their. It was a it was a period after Mao, and and there was a small window where they the art flourished for a few years before they shut it down again. And this was poetry and 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 photography and painting and sculpture. And it was like the late 70s, and it was a very exciting time, and they marched for freedom of expression and, and their human rights, and um, a lot of different activists were involved. And this was, you know, after the worst sort of repression in China, after the, you know, um, Mao and the um, Cultural Revolution. So that film um, sort of got hurt by... COVID in the sense that the festivals that were considering the film, um, you know, started to close up and we had to re, um, can sort of reconfigure where we would do a premiere. Now it's maybe premiering in Hong Kong. We're not sure. Um, and so we're just sort of let that ride and see what happens. And the other film we did was about Shime, also with Andy Cohen. And this was a film about, um, a woman, there was a big scandal in China called the Black Blood Scandal, where peasants were donating their blood for $5 a month, which was like $5, which was their monthly wage, practically. Um, and none of the needles or the donation syringe, nothing was sanitized. So that the people donating and then people who were transfused with the blood ended up getting HIV. So hundreds of thousands were ill and oh, wow. nobody knows how many people died. But this woman, you know, got it when she was a child and during the transfusion. And she has been a leader in uh, making sure that the other peasants who are living with HIV get them <clears throat> reimbursements and their care and their medicine, even when the local government and authorities are repressing them and trying to frighten her off. So <clears throat> that film is called Shime. That also is not yet released for streaming, but it did get a film festival premiere in Geneva, the Human Rights Film Festival, and is doing festivals now. And it had a nice little um, theatrical release in um, New York and L.A. and got some great reviews, so that was nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I get some water. You can edit, 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 edit. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna let her be embarrassed about this. Is, <laughs> just kidding. Could you talk a little bit about? I mean, and obviously, you know, Karis's piece was, you know, someone you knew. What when you're going to make it? When you were decide to make a documentary, how does that process work? Is it, is it more of a, are you going out looking for things to make a film about, or is it more you learn about something that's really interesting and then you decide, boy, maybe I could, maybe this could be a film. How, how does that work for you in, in terms of deciding on a project? Well, for me, it's been, there's been 
a subject that, you know, I was either approached by, like the diamond dealers, you know, I was, I think at the time, uh, one of the guys, Harvey Lieberman, was saying, you really should come down. This is a great film. You should come down and see what we're doing here. And his father was a diamond cutter, and he was acting part-time, but the other part-time, he was also cutting diamonds with his dad, and he said, you got to come and see this crazy place. And, wow. Um, that was how I got, you know, it's the only way you could get access is you had to come in through somebody. Um, you know, a lot of it is that, you know, there's a great idea. There's a million great ideas, but then you figure out how are you going to get money? You know, how's the funding? And for Kara's piece, you know, I ended up, you know, just taking a camera, a small camera and shooting um, myself. And, you know, a lot of footage ended up <laughs> not being used because I really appreciated the kind of work that camera and sound people do after I saw what I did. But on the other hand, it worked well because it was just me and my other friend, Becky Nelson, who was also an actress. And um, she's in the film, too, with Karis and uh, Karis's best friend at Yale and after. And so it was sort of like the girls are here, you know, so we would come down and it was a very intimate setting. And I didn't bring in a cameraman really until Karis was performing. And then we brought in, you know, a serious camera person to, to shoot that. But we didn't even know that she was going to do it. So, I mean, the budget for that was practically nothing and, you know, just expenses. And then, you know, then we had to go find money. And for Kastner, you know, that was, much bigger money, you know, looking for investors or people who could back it and, you know, write it off. That was the, you know, how many, <laughs> you know, I mean, what you're doing is you have, you work through a nonprofit a lot. And so when people are putting money into a film, they get a tax write-up for it. Um, and it's a 501 and then you're doing the film. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel like every documentarian I've ever talked to, and I've talked to a few, not a ton, but everyone kind of has like a different process. That's a, yeah. um, yeah, that's super interesting. And, and I'm very interested in this and at any time, Joe, feel free to jump in if you have any questions, but, um, it's, it's title shot. This one, <laughs> I learned a bit about this. You started this like a long time ago, right? Yeah. Can you, can you title tell us shot. a little bit about this? Cause I think this is awesome. This sounds great. I love it. You know, Title Show was a boxing film that I started filming after the Diamond Dealer film. And it was shot on film. This was before we, people were shooting on video, mostly. And so Bob Richmond shot a lot of it. Another great cameraman, um, Paul Gibson, shot. And, you know, all handheld, mostly verite stuff. Very few sit-down, no sit-down interviews, I think. Um any interviews were really on on the spot, but it was following a, a, a young boxer who was from Uganda, who was a gold medal, who did a amateur gold medal championship uh, there, and then came to America, and it was with a management team and trainer, and um, he was um, training down at the you know iconic gym in Brooklyn called Gleason's. And that's where I met him, and um, we thought, oh, this would be interesting following his career. So we followed him through four film, through four fights, and what happened was he didn't win, so he lost his title fight. It's a real roller coaster of a of uh, a voyage with journey with Godfrey. His name is Godfrey Nakana. He was a middleweight, junior middleweight. And along the way, we meet all these other people. What what happened is that you know we had no more money. 
So we had raised some money, paid for the filming, but didn't have enough money to actually print the film and get get it out. You know, it, it was we could expose it, but we we couldn't we couldn't print it, and so I stuck it in the vault and just left it there. And then I just I thought about it. And I thought this is great footage. So I did like a Kickstarter campaign or an Indiegogo finally, and raised some money. And then another investor came in, Eric Freeman, who said, you know, I really like boxing and let's get this stuff out of the vault. So we raised enough money to get it out. Then we had to sink it because, you know, those days sound and picture were different items altogether. And the audio, some of it was on quarter inch audio. They had to fake it or to, you know, I mean, it was crazy. But this footage survived, and it looks amazing. And so now I'm editing it, and there's really it's getting some really interesting um, early in- interest by sports writers and people because what happened is sort of like you know good wine you put it in the cellar and let it let it percolate in a way. Um, the people who we filmed, you know, some of them became huge boxing stars they were just starting out like sugar shane mosley and others were you know at the height of their career kevin kelly and then other people were just sort of coming in and out of the the film but as workers i mean muhammad ali's trainer angelo dundee and the greatest cut man around al gavin and so it's it's a great story it's all pinned on this boxing and and i, I don't know are you a boxing fan I, I, no, no, no? I, but, but I like watching movies about it. It's weird. Like I don't yeah, watch boxing matches, but I yeah. love documentaries about sports people. I, I love it. Well, I think, you know, my favorite film about boxing is Fat City. I think it was, that's, that's mm. just the greatest film, but I, because it's not about, or Rocky, I love Rocky. I lo- I think Rocky in the last one he did was um, not, not the last one, but the mm. one. The first one was Stallone is the trainer. What was that? Yeah, Creed. Yeah. Creed. Yeah. yeah. But just fantastic because it's not about the winners. You know, it's always, and it was a sports writer who, when I was first thinking, is it worth, you know, reviving this film, bringing it out again? And, and he said he's a famous sports writer, and I can't remember his name right now, and he writes for New Jersey for the press, I think, like in his late 80s. And he said, yeah, he goes, that's the interesting story. It's not the winning. It's the guys who come back from losing you know mm-hmm. oh. and i think that's that's true and um you know it's just that i think i think that it resonates with people and and um and, and that that to me is is the heart of it you know and everybody wants their title shot everybody the trainers want it for themselves so that you know their their fighter gets it and it reflects on them the fighters i mean everything is about you know championships championships run sports you know there is no point to sports until you get to the playoffs or the championships if there were no championships there would be no sports you know yeah and boxing is yeah competition but it's all about the championships i mean you know it's it's like you could you could have football games forever but unless there's a super bowl at the end no you know what's the point yeah, well, or I, well, the NBA, you know, I mean, what's yeah. the point? What I meant was that 
you know, without championships, that kind of diminishes the competition as well. You right. know what I mean, like having that makes you work harder or you want to get this yes. thing to okay, show that you are the best. To get, exactly. To get your championship. To get, yeah. And, and I think that's the, that's what this film tries to portray. And, and, um, and, and, and what, uh, the other thing about boxing, and this is why I asked if you were a boxing fan or not, is that today when you're looking at boxing, I mean, when they do a pre-fight, you know, and they do the documentary kind of footage around a fight, you know, it's all very controlled by the promoters and the, and the, the managers and the team, mm-hmm. the broadcasters, and, you know, it all looks very glossy and it's very um, mm-hmm. slick. And the thing that is so unique about this and, and what I think other sports writers were responding to was that there is complete transparency. There's nobody guiding or monitoring um, the, the filming. There's nobody trying to form, you know, a look for Godfrey. It's just what is. And you see Angela Dundee not in a big sit-down interview. And he's just there in the, you know, in the green room, um, the locker room, uh, with one of his fighters. You know, and he's looking at his watch and it's like, you know, he's got this guy and, you know, maybe he's going to be okay, maybe not. Nobody's ever heard from him since, this fighter. But, you know, he's just working. Yeah. It's just what it does. You know, he's got, you know, George Foreman one night and he's got this guy another night. And I think that's the, the uniqueness about this is that, you know, it's um, it's just what, that's why I love Fat City so much, too. It's just, just um, what you have to do. You know, yeah. that's, that's just the job. Just yeah. the job. I, I love, I adore, you're just making me want to see this more because I, I adore that kind of cinema verite, fly on the wall. Let's just live with these people. Let's watch how they go. I think that's such a unique storytelling that was popular in the 60s once they had cameras that could finally be carried. And in the Maisels, like you brought up, and Pinna Baker and all these guys doing this just awesome stuff. And I love that you have this footage. I feel like several documentaries recently, not like, not like title shot, but I mean, um, you know, there was, um, maybe you can remember Joe, what's the, the one about space where they use like 50 year old footage that came out like this year or something. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. It was about Apollo 11. Really? You liked it? (laughs) Oh, I I haven't seen it. No, no, I haven't seen that yet. But, but my point is like, I love when people, I just remember the reviews, the review, they,
that's the illusion. That's the illusion. The story, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's of course it's the totally illusion. Totally being formed in the edit room. Every shot, you know, every yeah. scene, every, you know, I mean, it's even harder because you then, you know, it's like, well, I mean, Fred Wiseman is famous for it. You know, all yep. of his. I don't know what the, I think his last film is City Hall in Boston. You know, it looks like he's a fly on the wall, but, you know, it's like a year and a half in the edit room. Um, you know, all those films that are, are like that, the, the editing is, you know, one or two years. Some of oh, them. yeah. It's, it's very, because you're, you're creating, you know, in a way it's interesting. I always thought, and the same thing happened with, um, you know, Kastner and the Diamond film um, as well, because you have a scene where it's supposedly your fly on the wall, but, you know, where's the drama in the scene? What are the characters doing? What, what do you want? Um, what do you, what do you want the, the, the scene to reveal? What's the, what's the point of, you know, you have to have a point. Of Absolutely. So yeah, this very, I mean, the editors really make the film, you know, I mean, yeah. that that's true. And it, if it looks like, you know, they're just hanging out, um, then they're good editors. Honestly, Galen, we really appreciate you talking with us. Um, this was a blast. This and- has been great, guys. I, you know, I have. I mean, I can only add to title shot. You know, is that we're finishing it, and hopefully, you know, we're going to get this. Um, you know, either a film festival or a broadcast. But I think it's, uh, it's really, it's exciting. It's an exciting film for for me to see, and the footage is like extraordinary uh, what i love about it i'll just tell you one thing what i loved about it you know i didn't know when i was filming half the time when i was filming because i have a cameraman bob richmond who just films he goes ahead and films and i and i don't know where he is all the time but <laughs> there's uh it was really amazing and they we took the fighter to a boxing club called ring eight and it's retired boxers and they they get a lecture or a speech once a month or something from other another boxer that they you know honor and that was godfrey's night and so afterwards you know all these boxers were shaking his hand and saying hello and and then I, when I'm editing it, I go back and each one of these guys is like amazing. You know, one beat uh, Ali, one, you know, knocked out Ali, another one is mocking. I mean, each one had their own story, even for like these few seconds on screen. Of course, they're all dead now. Oh. But they're, you know, just amazing guys that, that you know, you know. You That's just, awesome. Yeah, it was awesome. And and awesome. Uh, one quick question about uh, Gottfried. It, it, I could have heard this wrong, and and if so, I can always you know cut this. But <laughs> no, no, this wasn't on. This was this was a different thing. This was in a different interview or something, I think. But did he become a mayor? He yeah, he ended up going into. I mean, he came from a sort of a middle class family in Uganda, so he came. We went back when he realized that, you know, his his shot was over. Essentially, he. Wow. Nobody was going to back him, and you can't survive, you know, as a fighter without, you know, a, a manager, you know, paying your bills. So he went back, and he ended up going into politics, and he sort of became like a regional mayor, just like, you know, Kampala, like Brooklyn or something in New York, you know. And I think he finally, finally got out of politics. We talked a few months ago on WhatsApp, and it was fun catching up. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, 
Um, you, please, if you think about it, I'm sure we'll hound you about it. As soon as this comes out, let us know. We'd love oh. to see it. Yeah, I mean, and maybe Joe yeah. can write about it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and we'll totally watch it and talk about it. I mean, it's, right. it's. Uh, I mean, I'm excited about it. I hope our listeners get excited. Did you see the website? No, I haven't seen that yet. Oh, I'll send, I'll message you guys the website. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, and we'll Absolutely. definitely let people know about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll yeah. Titleshotfilm.com. Yeah. Title awesome. Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, I'm excited about that. Galen, thank you so much. I mean, this was this was a great time. Thank you. Well, there you have it. You heard it yourself. Galen had a great time. I mean, you know that. I mean, I'm 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 proud of that. That's awesome. Uh, she was an absolute delight. Uh, you know, Joe as well. I mean, Joe and I have just become great friends through this whole process and. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to what comes next. And guess what comes up next week? Our plan right now is to do some stuff with Scorsese because November 17th is Martin Scorsese's birthday. And lucky for us, that lands right on a Tuesday, which is the day that we will be dropping the episode. Tuesday, November 17th. That is one week from today. We're going to be talking about Martin Scorsese. Uh, we're probably going to be posting some stuff on um, social media. Uh, right now, actually, we have a poll. Uh, you can go check out on Facebook. I know it is. I'm pretty sure it's on Instagram as well. Either way, I'm going to double check. The point is this. We have a poll going on right now. Which movie would you like us to review? Martin Scorsese's uh, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, or The King of Comedy? So be sure to go, you know... Uh, Make your choice there. Let us know what you want to hear. We're going to be doing some other stuff with Scorsese. It's going to be great. Um, but until then, you know, thank you so much for listening to our conversation with Galen Ross, and thank you for your support. If you want to check us up, again, Medium Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, go find us. And until then, good night, good luck, and take it easy. <laughs>